I'm going to read Psalm 51 down to verse 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, if you'll take out your insert, if you haven't done so already, and open up to the inside where it says the gift of true repentance. The gift of true repentance. I, you may not know this about me. I am actually have developed an expertise over the years, uh, technical expertise with electronics. Uh, for years, our kids have had cell phones. We've had cell phones in our house, and a kid or my wife will bring their phone to me and says, it's not working right. And I will think, diagnose it carefully, look at all the specs, and, and very presciently ask, have you turned it off and turned it back on? And usually that isn't the case, and usually it works. It's amazing. I feel so smart. I don't know what it is about a cell phone turning it off and turning it back on. Somehow like it just, it just renews everything. It wipes out all the gremlins that are in the system and why it won't update. I don't know. Obviously, I'm not an expert, but I know that there's a, a gift most of us have, the off button and the on button. It just works, right? There's a gift the Lord has given into the body of Christ to his people that brings a, a renewal over and over and over again. And this passage is probably the classical passage in the scripture describing the effects of that and that gift of is repentance it is repentance we are designed to be a people who repent into christ initially but then every day thereafter and maybe many times a day are are repenting and the word repent means essentially to turn it means to turn Turn and go a different direction. Turn with an intention of moving in a different direction to to turn. And so the Scripture, I think, invites us to both elevate repentance as supremely important. At the same time, it wants us to treat it as a very normal, common, routine thing. And that's a little bit challenging because uh, often normal, common, routine things, we have struggled with seeing it as really important. And if we make something really important, we say, well, how is it, how can it be routine and common and normal? But I have discovered something, it actually happened in my own life this week, that very thing, something that is extremely important and very common. I did something this week uh, that was actually pretty special. Uh, saved someone's life, actually, nobody knows about it, so I'm going to tell you. And you just did that same thing. You took a breath. I took a breath this week, and then another one, and another one, and another one, and I kept living. 
breathing, guys, incredibly important, very common in routine. We take 22,000 breaths a day on average. That's one every, I don't know, 3.92, 3.94 seconds. And it just seems so common. But if you, if you stop taking a breath for like four breaths or five breaths or six breaths, that's like 30 seconds, you'd be like, okay, I could take a breath anytime now. That would be okay. In fact, if you just reduce that 22,000 by 1% all in a row, you wouldn't need the 22,001st breath because you would be dead. It, breathing is incredibly important and very, very common, routine, and normal to us. Repentance, designed to be very common, very routine, very normal, incredibly important. So we're, we're, we're kind of existing in tension between those two things. Incredibly important. Normal, same time. As I said, it simply means turning, a change of course of action, a change into something. In Christ, we're saying we're, we're turning away from sin into Jesus. Now, we are heading to the communion table in just a few minutes. That's not new. We do this every single week. But we often, as we're looking at the Old Testament and we're looking at the Psalms, we say we're reading this in a different way than the original hearers would have heard it. They, what they understood in shadow form, we see fully. That we, we are reading Psalm 51, this poem or this song, in light of the fact that we know something. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension power of Jesus and so we're going to talk and think about repentance in light of that. That In Christ, if you're in Christ, you are justified. That means yours, the penalty of your sin has been taken by Jesus and his righteousness placed on you, imputed to you. That doesn't change. Your sin doesn't change that. Repentance is a gift by which we turn back to God. It removes that sort of that pollution in our life. And it's a gift by which we turn back and reestablish that relationship. And it's meant to be normal. The the phrase which gets often credit for beginning the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the very first of the 95 Theses allegedly nailed to the Wittenberg door, the church in Wittenberg, said this, and I put this in your insert, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It should say one of repentance. It's normal. Now, I think probably what happens in, in America and for you history nerds, since the Second Great Awakening, we've probably freighted or loaded repentance with too much idea of emotion. And it may, it may be emotional, but it doesn't have to be. And if we think emo, uh, repentance is always weeping and gnashing of teeth and tears and crying, it's, there's no way it's going to be normal. Well, that's just exhausting, right? It may be that emotional, depending on what's going on, but it may just be, oh, an objective reality that I'm turning back to God because I see my sin. One of the illustrations we often use in our community to talk about repentance is a car that's out of alignment. Anybody ever owned a car that needed aligned? Need an alignment job, right? So you know what happens if you don't do anything is it just drifts. Drift, 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 and eventually it just drifts into the median or the ditch, right? So you're always in a mode of constant adjustment, constant turning against the drift. And if you don't do anything for a minute and you're pay not paying attention, maybe you're trying to change the dials on your radio, realize that really just dated me. If you're trying to change your phone when you're driving, right, so you might not pay attention, and then you have to make a major turn. That's a major, and it, it feels more uh, intense because you've ignored it for a while. Our souls, though we are united to Christ, we are justified. The righteousness of Christ is ours. You know very well, and I know very well, that our souls are still bent. We are twisted. We are out of alignment, and the repentance is the gift by which we 
turned back into the way Jesus has made us to live, created us to live. Uh, On the front of your bulletin is a pre-service reflection. I run the risk of discouragement, but I just want to ask you, does anybody ever read these pre-service reflections by a show of hands? You were one out of five? Okay, well... I'll take that. That's good enough. So I'm always wondering, you know, we kind of work hard to find these. Should we keep putting them in there? But that was a lot of hands. Okay. This is an old preaching mentor of mine, Brian Chappell, sort of trying to get at the difference between false repentance and true repentance. It's on the front of your worship bulletin, right? He says, false repentance is less concerned with with spiritual contamination of sin than it is with the personal consequences of sin. True repentance is chiefly concerned with the wrong we have done to our Savior and others. False repentance is self-preoccupied. True repentance is a selfless seeking of spiritual fellowship and renewal. False repentance, this is good, false repentance flees correction from the Lord. True repentance seeks it. Repentance is not so much a doing as a depending. It is not so much a striving for pardon as a posture of humility. In true repentance, we confess our total reliance on God's mercy. We acknowledge the inadequacy of anything we would offer God to gain his pardon. In true repentance, we rest upon God's grace rather than trying to do anything to deserve it. We lean heavily on the words of Isaiah, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. In Psalm 51 is sort of the classical location in the Scripture, I think, dealing with repentance. And so we're going to spend two weeks on it because it's a long psalm. Anytime you do that, you run the risk of not really having a clean ending on the first sermon. We might, that, after the first service, I would say, that might be the case. Okay, so just come back next week. It'll kind of be, get wrapped up. We're going to talk about the shape of repentance today, and then next week, the effect of true repentance. The background to this psalm, though, is very important. Some of you may know it. Some of you may know this story well. It may be new to some of you. King David. This is, by the way, kind of exhibit A of why we don't want to try to turn the people in the, to the, uh, of the Bible into pure heroes all the time. Yes, this is the David who defeated Goliath. David has some other issues in his life. So David, before he was king, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. He was told, he was, it was declared that God would make him king one day. The person who was king, Saul, was not so kind to that idea and sought to do everything in his power to prevent David from being king, mainly by trying to kill David. So obviously if David gets killed, he's not going to become king. Saul feels secure. So David's on the run in the wilderness. He has very little to commend himself to others. He has got very little money. He's got very little power. But some people love David. They have great loyalty and fidelity to David, and they join themselves to him. And out of that group, he created a group of people that were maybe what you would call the special forces, David's mighty men. 37 men who bound themselves to David when he was on the run from Saul in the wilderness before he was king, when he was weak, and they just gave themselves to David because they loved him, they wanted to see him king, and they were just loyal to him. Most of them were Jewish men. Not all of them were Jewish men. Some of them were saved Canaanite men. Some of them even from the little tribe in the, in the Canaanite region called the Hittites. One of them was named Uriah the Hittite. One of David's mighty men, his royal guard, his bodyguards, people who pledged their life for David, was named Uriah the Hittite before David had any power whatsoever. Let's fast forward a few years. David has become king. 
Many of the mighty men of David have been placed in important positions in the kingdom. David had placed Uriah the Hittite under the direct command of his main general, Joab. So he honors Uriah. Uriah is faithful to him. He honors Uriah by placing him under Joab's command. In that time in the ancient Near East, if there was a battle, part of the role of the kings was to lead their troops into battle. This is the job of the king. That may sound strange to us today. That a pre, you know, If presidents or senators or dictators had to lead their troops into battle today, I think there would be fewer wars, probably. You know, if a senator can send an 18-year-old into battle and doesn't have to go himself, it's probably a little easier, just saying. Nonetheless, kings David led his people into battle. That's the normal operation for David. But 2 Samuel 11 begins with these pregnant words. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out into battle, David sent Joab. He did not go. David, there was an incursion on the border, I think it was the Philistine border. There is an incursion on the border. David sent Joab, and he did not go. We don't know why David didn't go. Maybe he's feeling entitled. Maybe he's feeling, I'm 50. I'm, you know, I'm not as sharp as I used to be. I may not make it on the battlefield. Feeling a little flabby. I totally get all of that. David should have gone, but he didn't. And that's what that little verse is signaling to us. So instead of going, he sends Joab, he sends Uriah, sends all the, the folks out, and, and he should have been fighting a battle, but he wasn't. Instead, he was taking a stroll on the roof of his palace, which would have been the tallest building in the city. And as he's taking a stroll, something catches his eye down below. And what he sees, in a, probably in a, in, a, in a walled courtyard with no roof, is a woman bathing. And she's either naked or partially naked, and she appears to David to be beautiful. Now, she wasn't doing anything wrong. My understanding is that's how, they, that's how the, the structures were made. You, you bathe in a courtyard that didn't have roofs, but nobody can see in unless you're on top of the tallest building in the city. David, who's married, by the way, spies this woman who is beautiful and at that moment should have said, whoa, turned away. Turned away. It's an accident. Fine. Whatever. He doesn't do that. He looks. He begins to desire. He begins to lust. He wants to have this woman. He's, so he's not only violating his wife at this point, he's violating this, this woman made in the image of God by secretly leering at her. And he should have come to his senses and turned away. And instead, he sends a servant to, to find out who this is. Who is this beautiful woman? You know, you can imagine what David's thinking. Like, well, yeah, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. What what her name is, you know? know, Sexual sin particularly makes a stupid in a numbing way. So David's like, I wonder what her name is. Comes back, her name, uh, she's not a Jewish woman. She's probably also a Hittite woman. Her name is Bathsheba. She's married to a man named Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, who's one of David's mighty men, who serves under the general Joab, who pledged his life and loyalty to David when David had nothing, that's the one. And so David at that point should have said, what am I thinking? This is the wife of this old friend of mine. I should leave this situation alone and turn immediately. He doesn't. He says, maybe I should talk to her. And he sends for Bathsheba. She comes to the palace. In that culture, she would have very little cultural power. Right? She would not, he was the king. She was, she did not have much cultural capital, probably not even Jewish. So, you know, the, the, 
the narrative spares us of a lot of detail. He ends up having sexual relations with Bathsheba. I think she would have had very little ability to say no to that. In our cultural makeup, we would have said there's a power differential that is at least sexual assault, probably something worse and stronger. The Bible doesn't talk about it too much other than saying this happened. So he sins with this woman. He sins against this woman. He sins against his wife. He sins against his old bodyguard. He sins against this woman. Sends her away. Word comes back eventually. Bathsheba is pregnant. Hmm. This is problematic because her husband's not here. And some, at least the servants who fetched her, knew that she'd come to the, to the palace. So now he's got he's to think, what am I going to do? I'm going to be exposed. She's pregnant. Let me do this. Let me send for Uriah from the front lines and bring him back. He brings Uriah back and says, Uriah, you've been such a loyal servant to me. I want to bless you. Why don't you go home and enjoy the comforts of home for a few days? Thinking, ha, if he goes home and he's with his wife in an intimate way and goes back and she's pregnant, maybe it'll just be like, oh, it's Uriah's baby. Good to go. No DNA test. We're, we're clean, right? Um, Uriah, though, and David should have known this because this is the type of person a, a mighty man is, a loyal man, says, you know, my men are sleeping in the field without the comforts of home. In solidarity to them, I'm not going home. And David's like, okay, that didn't work. Let me get you drunk. And he gets you, Uriah drunk. And Uriah says, I'm drunk, but I'm still not going home, right? It's that, it's, he, he, he liquors him up, but he's like, I'm still going to be in solidarity with my men. So David is now, he has a problem. He is going to be exposed. So he writes a letter and would have written the letter and sealed it with his signet ring and wax. Nobody could open except the person it was addressed to. It was addressed to Joab, the general, and it was, this is so cold. He gives it to Uriah to deliver to Joab. And the letter says something like, here's what I want you to do. Uh, Joab, I want you to put Uriah at the tip of the spear where the fighting is the most intense, and then I want you to draw back and let him be killed. And uh, Joab is apparently one who just follows directions, and that's exactly what he did. And so Uriah is killed in battle, and then Joab sends a letter back to David that says uh, he's been killed, and David sends a letter back to Joab that says this, Joab, do not let the matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now the other. Translation, hey, people die in battle sometimes. Something else might have gotten, might have gotten Uriah if it wasn't this. What's he doing? Well, he's totally deflecting, right? This is a cowardly move by a king. But it's, you know, all seems fine. He got away with it. Everything, can, we can just move on. Maybe you have stuff in your life like that. You're like, I think, I think it's in my past. I think I'm good. There's this haunting verse, the very last verse of chapter 11, that began, you know, chapter 11 begins, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to a day battle, David sent Joab, it ends like this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So what happens? The next chapter. And the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David and he came to him and said to him he's like so King David got a question for you I need your input on something tricky tricky matter let me tell you the story there were two men in a certain city the one was very rich and the other very poor the rich man had many flocks and herds 
But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and which he brought up, and it grew up with him and was with his children and so on and so forth. Now there came a rich man. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the rich man had some authority over the poor man. He said, I, I have plenty, but I'm not going to give it to the traveler. I'm going to take yours. You have one. I'm going to give it to the traveler. Implication, David, what should happen here? Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now, that's overreaction. Maybe it's a guilty conscience. There is a provision in the law of what actually should happen. And then he follows up with that provision. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So Nathan sets a narrative trap for David, and David walks right into it. And then Nathan says famously, even though he had taken his life into his own hands, he says, David, you are the man. You had everything, everything, and you took You used your power to take. You are the man. Nathan says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David, it wasn't the battle that killed uh, Uriah. It wasn't Joab that killed Uriah. It was you. You've tried to play it off. Oh, things happen in battle. It happened because you did it. You are the man. Sometimes it is super helpful for us to hear either a convicting word of the Spirit through the Word of God or from a friend these words. You are the man. You're guilty. It just cuts through so much stuff sometimes. Sometimes we need to hear that. You are the man. Roger, you have sinned. You did this. It's part of the function of community. This whole thing brings David to his senses. And he says a little bit later, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 is David's poetic response to this whole thing. Somewhere in this, he writes this. And the lesson here is not that sin is appropriate only, that, that sin, the lesson is not that sin is appropriate ever. The lesson is not that re- repentance is appropriate only when sin is grievous. I mean, it would be a mistake to think that repentance is reserved for only when sin is this destruction, destructive. The, the biblical teaching is repentance is even effective when sin is this destructive. It's also effective for everything else in our life, but it's so powerful that it's even effective for something like this, but also effective for every other type of sin in our life. And what we see in Psalm 51, at least this first part, is true repentance is a gift of grace that moves us from guilt and shame to joy and freedom. True repentance is a gift of grace that moves us from guilt and shame to joy and freedom. Guilt and shame. Now, I realize our culture hates the idea of guilt and shame. We're running away from it as fast as we can. There's an author named Brene Brown. Some of you like her. I get it. She made a whole life of saying, here's how you avoid shame. Here's how you avoid shame. Okay, shame is okay if it moves us toward Jesus. And if we get toward Jesus, he takes care of the shame, right? So it's okay to feel guilty and ashamed if we've sinned, and we let it move us toward Jesus, 
Now, if we are stuck in this cycle of ongoing, a lot of sensing guilt and shame, it may be a heart that is missing something in the gospel. But today, we're just going to look at the shape of repentance. Very briefly, very just sort of uh, plainly. The shape we see in these first few verses is simply this. God, you are. I'm gonna, I can repent because you are something. And then I own something, and then I need you to act. You are, I own, you act. This is effective for David. It's effective for you. It's effective for me, no matter the size or the amount of destruction we've wreaked havoc in other people's life with. You are, I own, you act. So let's look at this. Psalm 51, 1. He begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he begins by saying, God, you are something. It starts out with, like, have mercy on me. This is not a man who has any claim on God at all. I got nothing, Lord. I got empty hands. Help me. I need your help. And it's, I can come to you because or according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What is the steadfast love of God? It's that word hesed that we talk about, the covenant love of God, love by which God binds himself to his people, and the abundant mercy that he's talking about is an emotion word, a compassionate word about God's compassion that flows from his covenant love. In the communion table, we see the the full flowering of this covenant love as we trace it through Scripture in the life of Christ, in the death of Christ, and in Christ's resurrection. In communion, we take communion. What's pressed upon us is Jesus giving himself for us and his present reality of standing in heaven, ministering his grace to us by the Spirit. And it pictures his covenant love. That's why we say when we take the cup, Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant. It's for you. That's his covenant commitment to us, and then his compassion for us. When our elder Daryl Capp saw me having this book this morning, Gentle and Lowly, he's like, are we doing another commercial for this book? Answer, yes, we are doing another commercial for Gentle and Lowly. This is a book many of you have read. We've given a couple hundred copies away. It's, there's a few left out there, so a lot of you haven't. I'm going to hazard a guess that more of you haven't than have read it. Though many of you have read it, all good with that. Uh, this is, uh, this is a, a guy in our denomination, Dane Orland, who's just making the case for a couple hundred pages that Jesus is compassionate to his people, not in spite of their sin, in spite of their weakness, and in spite of their brokenness. He's compassionate to us because of those things. That's the nature of what Christ is for his people. He's compassionate to us. So David is saying here, Lord, I'm coming to you, and I've got one reason and only one reason. There's only one thing on my resume I can present to you, God, as a reason you would hear me. And that one thing is you. That's it. Your covenant love is the reason I can come. So you are. If we, only, if we come to God because of us, right, it, we could be tempted to think about our faithfulness, our sincerity of feeling. Now I feel bad enough about my sin. Now I can finally come to God. Or my... My intention of the future, Lord, if you forgive me of this, I promise, yada, yada, yada. That's coming to God based on us. If we wait to come to God until we feel bad enough about our sin, some of us are like this, super sensitive conscience, deal with a lot of guilt, I don't feel bad enough yet, I can't go to God. We're going to God based on us. We can go to him because he has covenant love for his people. 
maybe this is pointing out the obvious here, but David is interacting with God. He is communicating with him, engaging with God in clear and definite ways. He's not just carrying around some vague feeling. Sometimes we do this, right? We, we know something is amiss in our life, and we, kinda, and we carry around this vague feeling, have a sense like God is in the periphery somewhere, and I probably, no, he's not thrilled with what's happening, but that's just how it is. That is a miserable way to live. What we see here is David actually talking to God, bearing his soul, doing, doing business with God. And I know, I know that it's a lot easier to kind of feel bad about something than actually deal, with, actually deal with God on it. But Psalm 51, guys, is an invitation for us. Come on in and let's deal with God about what we see in our life. You are, you are. Then I own something specifically. Verse 3, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. There's a bit of a challenge when you preach through books of the Bible, or preach sequentially through Scripture instead of like just doing a topic each week. Because when you do a topic each week, you can always feel good at the end of it. Like, oh, that made me so happy and glad and joyful. When you follow the emotional flow of the text, you have to go where it goes. This is a psalm of repentance. You're like, wow, this is kind of weighty. Well, he just had one of his good friends killed and had adul- he committed adultery or ab- abuse with his wife. So, yeah, it's heavy, right? Um, but the good news is if this repentance is effective for that, it's effective for you and me. So the second part of the shape is I own it. I own my transgression. I own my sin. My transgression, my sin. So what we have here is a guy who is no longer airbrushing what he does. No longer spinning, minimizing, adjusting, justifying, excusing what's going on. And so I just want to pull this apart for a second, and then we're going to go to the table. Verse 4 Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Maybe today we would say, I feel bad because I let myself down. (laughs) That's in my sight. Or if you're more of a traditionalist, I let my folks down. That's in their sight. Or if you're more progressive, oh, I let my culture down. That's in the culture sight. David's like, Lord, in your sight, I did what was wrong. This presupposes a heart and conscience that's shaped by God's word. That's why Nathan says to David, you despised the word of the Lord. Against you, you only have I sinned. So does this mean David did not then sin against his own wife or Uriah or Bathsheba? Like maybe, you know, he only sinned against God. So if you have kids and... Your, your son does, sins against a daughter, and you say, you sinned against her, and he says, actually, I didn't sin against her. It was only against the Lord. So I don't have to apologize, nothing, no. Uh, what this is saying is, yes, of course, David sinned against his own wife and Bathsheba and Uriah and the people he was supposed to lead and all the things that a king was supposed to do. Those are devastating things that are downstream of something that's prior to all that. He sinned against 
the Lord. In some way, this lets levels all sin because all sin first foundationally is against the Lord and in its downstream has sometimes devastating effects, uh, effects on others. Sin against you. And then he says these super freeing words. I sinned. I did this. He had a lot of reasons, right, contextually, possibly, to give descriptions like why this was so easy. Nobody knows the pressures of a king, right? Nobody knows how hard, I'm, I don't know how hard it is to be king. I, what David could have said, you know, nobody knows the, the weight I bear on my shoulders, and he would have been right. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. Maybe he was still traumatized from Saul trying to kill him years before. Maybe he has family of origin issues. Right? He was the youngest of like six or seven, and some of his older brothers were jerks. Right? They were mean to him. Maybe he had, you know, he had trauma from family background. Um, maybe he thought, oh, I have such an unusual circumstance. This wasn't my fault. The Lord gave me this huge palace from which I can see naked women when they're bathing. Right? There's not, this, and God, I'm, I know I'm over 50, but my eyes are pretty good still, so this isn't all on me. I mean, we are so good. We're, we're, we're so effective. And, uh, you know, there's, you've heard of confirmation bias. when we're, It's a, a bias where we take data and use it to affirm what we already believe. Here's the one problem with confirmation bias that's true for a lot of you people in here. The more educated you are and the smarter you are, the more susceptible you are to confirmation bias. Did you know that? Because you're smart and you're creative and you serve yourself with all that data. David could have been doing this. I could totally see, if I'm in his situation, how I could justify this thing all the way up and through. Probably so can you. Maybe he felt that once he got in the middle of this thing, he couldn't disappoint people. I can totally see how this would happen, right? So he has, he's gotten, uh, I almost said halfway pregnant with this whole thing, but that wouldn't work on this. So Bathsheba is pregnant, and he's like, I can't let this come out. Imagine how this would how this would defame the Lord. Imagine how this would, the political implications and instability this could be. It's, I just, I have to continue down this path because the alternate would be too bad. And now we would say from a distance, that's ridiculous. But in the moment you can see, it is quite possible, for, guys, that in this room, a room this size with a group this size, some of us are in a path that right now we think, the cost of trying to get off is too much. My wife, my husband will be hurt too much. My employer, my kids, whatever. Can I plead with you? Get off the path. Now is the time to turn if there's something to turn away from. Please. What you will find in Christ is one thing. Mercy. Mercy. Would it have been better for David to turn earlier? Of course it would. Would everybody have known? It's a psalm already. Like everybody knows. Uriah would have lived. This, David never in some ways dealt with the fullness of this in his own family. Either. Like Things would have been different had he turned earlier. You and I both know there's a lot of contextual reasons for things. We can make excuses because of them. And I'm not saying environment doesn't matter. Environment does matter. Pressure does matter. Um, context matters. 
It does mean, you know, sometimes I can sin easier than somebody else because of a background thing or whatever, right? You can sin easier than somebody else. I read about 10 years ago an article that said they've identified a gene for anger. Did you know that? And I thought, praise the Lord. I just love that. You know, now the next time Carmen says, honey, were you a little harsh with the kids? I'm like, I'm pretty sure it was the gene. Well, what can I do? I know I got nothing to do. It's, you know. So it, is it true that there could be a gene that makes anger easier? I guess, probably sure. But what's the reason David sins? What's the reason David sins? What's the reason you sin? What's the reason I sin? Here's the reason. It's a complicated thing. Let me say it in one word. Us. We do it. We do it. The, the, the environment is the occasion, sure. We are the reason. We are the reason. It's good to take ownership. Say the word, I sinned. I sinned. Sometimes I have the, you know, just walk with guys and like whether it's dealing with like pornography or addiction or uh, alcoholism, whatever, like uh, alcohol is not always bad, but when it's addiction, it's problematic and sin. And I, I've noticed this tendency, like we want to round off the corners of what we do. And somebody will say, ah, you know, I messed up again. I will say, can we please say that you sinned? Can we say the word, I sinned? I said, because when we say the word, there's freedom then because God can actually, will, will actually deal with things with specificity in our mind. I sinned. It's good. Teach our kids to say, you know, I sinned. I sinned in doing this. We want to say that with our, if we come to ask for somebody for forgiveness, I want to say, I sinned against you in this way. Would you forgive me? We want to say the words, use the language. David's like, I sinned. I did that. And when we do that, here's what happens with this kind of honesty at the end of verse 4. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's like, okay, I'm going to admit it, acknowledge it. I sinned. You're right, God. You are completely right in what you say about my actions and my motives. You're totally right. I will submit to what you say with my sin. And if we're honest enough to do this, this is great news because we don't just get to submit to those words. We say, you know what's also true? I'm going to submit to these words. Like when Jesus says, this is my body given to you. This is my blood poured out for you. It's the, it's the covenant in my blood. This is yours. We can say, yes. I want to say yes with the same firmness as I say, you're right when you talk about my sin. You're right when you talk about your mercy. Yes. And then he says here, it's deeper than I anticipated. There's a depth to my sin. Some of us have been in situations where we step back and say, I'm so shocked. I did this. I can't believe it. I, I'm surprised at myself. <laughs> Disappointed. Surprised. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some people use this as a uh, proof text for original sin. There's probably a way you can do that. I'm not talking about that here. It's just, but I think what David's saying is like, it's all the way down and all the way back. It's not a commentary on his mom, right? And sin, my mother, you know, and the iniquity my, my mother can see me. It's like, uh, I'm sinful from birth. It's, I'm more twisted than I thought I was. It's darker than I thought I was in here. And I'm this, in this 
I have twisting inside me, but, verse 6, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What we think David is saying here is like, you delight in truth, and you've given me truth from the beginning as well, and you still give me truth. And what I find is this jumble of twisting and truth in myself. So what do we need when we have a jumble of twisting and truth? Repentance. Turning back, turning back, turning back. And then, so it's, first part of the shape is, you are, Lord, you are merciful with covenant love. I own it all, and then I need you to act. I need you to act. And we'll get into more of this next week, but I want you to see the request or the the nature of the request in verses 7 through 12. He doesn't say, God, I want you to feel different about me. Please change your emotional disposition toward me. Why? Because David's in covenant with God, and God's in covenant with David. His love for David hasn't evaporated because he sinned. On this side of the cross, we would say the love of Christ for us doesn't change toward us when we sin. The righteousness of Christ it doesn't get sucked away when we sin. So the righteousness of Christ is as much ours before we sin as after and in the middle. Why? It's not our righteousness. It's Christ, and we get it by virtue of being united to him. It's not like he, he drops it into our life and says, okay, now, now do a good job, and sin means we did a bad job, and it's gone. No, we're righteous in Christ. That's a permanent, fixed reality, and because of that, we have the freedom to come back and keep turning back over and over again. But can we trust that he'll do something? David's saying, I need you to act. I need you to remove something from life to change something. Just look at the active verbs here, verse 7 and on. Purge me with hyssop. Wash me. Make me let me hear joy or make me hear joy. Let the bones that you have break, broken rejoice. Make me rejoice. Hide your face. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me. Renew the right spirit in me. Don't cast me away. Don't take your spirit. Restore to me. Uphold me. God, I need you to do something for me. What confidence do we have that God is the kind of God who does something for us in our sin? We're going to go to the communion table right now. This is a God who doesn't do something for us in our sin. It's a God who does everything for us in our sin and because of our sin. So we're going to take the bread to our mouth, take the wine into our body. We're going to taste it. We're going to feel it. And what's pressed upon us by the Spirit is, I am a cleanser of sin and a a forgiver and a healer of sin in your life. And you have every reason to be confident to run to me, run to me, run to me. If you're in Christ, the table is open to you. What we say in the New City community is taking communion is a public declaration that I receive and rest on Jesus alone as, as he is offered in the gospel, and I actively want his lordship in my life. It's not for perfect people, but for honest people who are honestly dealing with their sin, turning to Christ and giving it to him. If that's you, table is open for you. I'm going to pray and invite you to the table. We'll, after I pray, you go along the sides here, go to the back, Grab a piece of bread and either white grape juice or red wine. We'll return to our seats and all take together. Let me pray, and then we'll go to the table. Lord, you are generous beyond measure and comprehension. There is more grace for us in Christ than there is sin in us. Let us not suffer the oppression of our own sin in silence, but run quickly to you, whether that's Things we would call big or small, they are all sins against you and something you are more than willing to cleanse us from. Let us not be slow. In Christ's name, amen.